Romans 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people who before knew. Do you not know what the scriptures say of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch, then, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means their reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered at first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now become disobedient 
in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him, that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Romans 11. about uh, art and music that just moves our soul uh, when it communicates the word of God. And I want to thank Will and little crew and Courtney for um, that faithful um, just presentation of our scripture today and of the gospel that we have been studying, uh, this whole book of Romans, the wonderful news that though we, by our own rejection, our own exchange, our own suppression of God and his will and our own life and your life and in mine. Our separation from him, the due consequence of that, his wrath being poured out and the, the, the judgment coming in that we are guilty and we are helpless, we are speechless before him, that God in his great love has made a way to rescue us back, has invited us back, has in his son Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, provided the righteousness that we need and invited us to receive life eternal in relationship with him. If we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ, that we could be reunited with God and we can have his spirit within us and we can live again as God designed us to live. Awesome news. The news that we've been talking about, the news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, he is not ashamed of for in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that includes you, friend. And I pray today that in your heart, you have a heart of repentance and faith toward Christ today. Uh, That you would have a heart of just surrender to him. That you would have a heart of love for God and his great salvation. Amen? Awesome portrayal. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and get them open to the book of Romans. We are marching through the book of Romans here. And uh, we are today in chapter 11. If you're new this morning, howdy. Great to have you. Thanks for coming. I'm Barrett, and uh, one of the pastors here. We're just a big family. Uh, we call ourselves Island Community Church. I remember when we were uh, over there in the school. Some of you guys were were here then. Not many of us, but uh, we've always just been a family of people who uh, have a love for the Lord Jesus and what He's done for us and His salvation and in His life giving. And uh, we unite together as a fellowship. We call ourselves ICC and. Uh, we are scattered across this community, but we do have a heart for God. And we have a heart for others to know God and to do good here in our community and around the world. And um, hey, we're glad you're here. Um, Romans chapter 11. I told you, I've been telling you, I want you to be a student of God's word, um, not just a student of, of preachers, but I really want you to every day spend time in God's word and to be a student of his word to allow God to speak directly to you as he can and will. Um, I've been trying to teach you uh, the, the book of Romans and the structure of the book of Romans. I told you before that there's three basic sections. I want to just outline them again. Three basic sections. Chapter 1 through 8, Paul gives us an explanation of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. What has gone so wrong in your life and what God has done to set it right again? 
what it looks like for you to walk after God and to receive the forgiveness in life that he offers you in Christ. That's Romans 1 through 8. Romans 9 through 11, the second section which we're going to be finishing today, is really aimed at giving us confidence in this salvation that has been explained. And then Romans 12 through 16 is meant to show us how in the world does that work itself out in your everyday life. We start that next week, and I hope that you'll be here for that. And in the coming weeks, we've got three more weeks. Isn't that hard to believe that in three more Sundays, we're going to be finishing up the book of Romans. But that's going to be that last section is how this works out in your everyday life. Today, we are in Romans uh, chapter 11 in that middle section. And I've wanted to show you that in this middle section, there's one primary question that Paul's trying to answer. It comes in chapter 9, verse 6. And the question is this, has God's word failed because the Jewish people today are rejecting the Messiah? They are not saved. Has, does this mean that God's word has failed? Because didn't he start with the Jewish people and invite them and promise them? And here he is inviting us now and promising to us in Christ. And if we look at them, though, in the current state of affairs in the Jewish pe- among Jewish people, if you meet most Jewish people today, uh, anybody, I, don't, I won't ask for hands, but do you, do you know any Jewish people? Um, many Jewish people today, when you begin talking to them about Jesus, they, they don't. They talk about a Messiah, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In fact, they've rejected Christ. Uh, you begin discussing with uh, many Jewish people today, and they don't believe what we believe. And it, there's, a, there's an obvious question that comes, well, if we look at the current state of, of Jewish people, and even in Paul's day it had begun. I mean, they had crucified Jesus. They, they were in charge then, and they had persecuted very much so, those who were followers of Christ, was all of our disciples. And if you look at the history of the other early church, there was great persecution, and much of that was from the Jewish people. So looking at their rejection, does that mean that God's word has failed? I mean, can we trust him and what he says to us about what is ours in Christ if we look at what has happened to them? And the answer is absolutely, we can trust him. Okay, chapter 9, if you remember, just as a reminder... The resounding answer to the question, has God's word failed? In chapter 9, we saw, no, it hasn't. Because God is faithful, though everyone else could turn from him, God remains faithful to himself. He remains faithful to his promises. And we've got to know that his promises were not to all ethnic Jews, but for to all those who in their heart, what made a Jew a, a true Jew, was in their heart having a heart of surrender and love for God, a willingness to follow him with their life, trust in the salvation that he alone could provide. That's what it really meant to be a true Jew in the heart. And he has always been faithful to those who are truly his. Okay, that was chapter 9. In chapter 10, so that was from God's perspective. In chapter 10, what we saw was from the human perspective, from the point of, Jew, point of view from the Jewish people themselves. The reason that God hasn't failed is because from their perspective, they actually chose to reject the Messiah. The reason they didn't inherit salvation wasn't because of God's unfaithfulness, but it was because of their unfaithfulness to God. In fact, they tried to earn approval before God and merit before God and before others by their own works. It says they stumbled over the stumbling stone, that stone of their own works. They were zealous, but zealous for themselves. What they thought they could offer to God and what they could do for God. They were passionate, but they weren't passionate about God's Savior. They didn't admit and confess that they needed rescue. Listen, you're sick this morning. I'm sick. We need rescue. Nobody in this earth, nobody can make it on their own. 
you can't do for yourself what needs to be done because your problem is much deeper than just your action. It's your heart, and only God can change your heart. Everyone needs a rescue, but the Jewish people were so stubborn and prideful and arrogant and obstinate that they rejected rescue and continued to walk in their own way, the way of works. And because of that, their hearts were hardened, their eyes were closed, they rejected God, and they did not inherit salvation. It's true for you and for me. Everybody tracking with that so far? Now, the question today in chapter 11 is this. Well, has God then totally rejected Israel? Because the Jewish people, now we're talking about the ethnic Jewish people, The question is, is there any hope for Jewish people today? Or has God turned his back on the Jewish people as a whole? Is there any hope for any future salvation, any future work, any future enlightening, any future Jesus following among ethnic Jewish people? Now this chapter, I I hope already you're beginning to be intrigued. um, Because of the reality that there are lots of Jewish people that I think you know and that live around you. We're going to talk about very personal and practical implications of this chapter before we leave today. This is important. It's important for you to know what God has said on this subject. What is God's current relationship with ethnic Jewish people? And has he totally rejected them? Because at the end of 10, I mean, if you're, if you're just honest, at the end of 10, it looks like, well, they may be done. They may be toasted. You know, their action is, they so refused him that maybe that's it. There's no other chance. But the answer of chapter 11 is no, God hasn't totally rejected them. And that's why the title of today's message, and if you got your guides, I believe it's page 52, the title of today's message is Israel, God's Gracious Plan. Israel, God's Gracious Plan. Because what God himself, you know, it's amazing. So many people are like to try to think that they could predict the future. You never hear talking heads on TV or on the radio uh, talking about, you know, what, what they want to predict in the future and what's going to happen in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and, you know, what's the end going to be like or whatever. But, you know, the, the scriptures warn us against um, kind of idle speculation, against just sitting around and thinking about things that really you don't know the answers to. It's a waste of time. Um, but there are some things that you can know the answer to. And those things are the things that God has revealed. Not things that somebody else says on TV. You know, if you want to know truth, all you got to do is open up God's word. God will, there are some things about the future God wants us to know. Some things about his heart and about his plan he wants you to know. And those things he's outlined for us in scripture. Those things that he hasn't outlined, we must not need to know. <laughs> but the things he has, we should think about. If you want to know about the future of Jewish people, both here in Memphis, in our country, and around the world, This chapter is incredibly helpful because it shows us that God has a gracious plan. And indeed, that's your core truth today. If you got something to write with, I want you to write uh, our core truth down today. Because at the end of the day, I want you to be able to understand the scripture, to have a guide for it in your own personal study, but also want you to be able to reteach it to somebody else. And the theme of our chapter today can be summed up, I believe, in this, that God has always had a gracious heart and plan for the people of Israel. He has always had a gracious heart and a gracious plan toward the people of Israel and for the people of Israel. And then the landing point of that is we should too. Okay? 
So where we're going today is looking at the scripture, and we're going to see that God has always had in his heart and in his plans graciousness toward the ethnic people of Israel, plans for salvation, desires for them to know him, and we should too. So we're going to open the word, and I'm going to try to outline it for you as best as I can so that we can hear what God says to us. And then we're going to look at what this means for our daily life. But I just ask right now that you would pray and just ask that God would speak to you, that he would teach you this morning, and that he would give you a heart for his people. Because the people that God has a heart for don't all look like you. They don't all live right around you or right beside you. Some of them do. But that God would give you a heart for all of his people and an understanding of his heart for them and his intention toward them, and that he would allow you to be a part of that. Just pray that God would speak to you real quick and uh, I'll continue in a second. We want to hear from you today. We want to receive from you today. We want to eat the food, the spiritual food that you provide to us today, that it would nourish our souls, that it would give sustenance to our life, and that it would overflow in the good work, gospel telling, needs meeting, Lord, in our lives for your glory alone. God, all of your scripture, all of your scripture is God breathed. All of it is useful, helpful, profitable for us. And I just pray today, Lord, that this scripture would speak to us, Lord, that you would remind us of your grace and your goodness, that you would show us your heart and your plan, and that you would move us into your will. Lord, we pray that you would do this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Five proofs that this scripture provides for us as to why it is that God is not finished with Israel yet. If you got something to write with, or if you've got a smartphone, something that can take notes, I always encourage you to not just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word and to be hungry to know what God has said. The question that is being answered is right here in verse 1 of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? It's a question that guides the whole chapter. And the answer is by no means. And the rest of the chapter, he's going to spend explaining to us why it is that we can be sure that there is still a future for ethnic Jewish people. All right? Five proofs. The first one is Paul himself. Paul himself. Verse 1, it says this. Strap your seatbelts on. We're going to go kind of quick because I want to spend most of our time in application. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, okay, let me just start. Uh, if you ask him that question, is, has God totally rejected Jewish people? He said, I'm going to raise my hand and say to you, okay, uh, what about me? Because I'm a Jew. I'm in the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, I'm a full-on, full-blooded Jew here. And what happened to me? Numerous times, his whole life, he went around preaching the testimony of how God had radically changed his life in Jesus Christ. 
Paul wasn't seeking after God. Indeed, Paul was going against the church. Remember? He was persecuting Christians when God did what? Showed up to him. God revealed himself to him. The Lord Jesus himself, Paul saw. And he saved him. He offered him his grace. Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners, the most undeserving of people, the very persecutor of the church. He can't get over the fact that God loves him so much that though he's a rebel, that God still offers to him salvation, that he radically changed his heart and life, not by anything that Paul had ever done or would ever do, but by God's grace and mercy. Paul was a new man. Now, all of this had happened after the Jewish people had rejected Christ, right? So what Paul says is he says, look at me. Look at me. If God has rejected the Jewish people, then how can you explain his choice to save me? So he says, you can't. I am a proof because I have been saved by the grace of God because he's loved me and came to me and changed me. I am a testimony today that God still has a work for Jewish people like me. Paul knows that his fellow kinsmen and the ethnic people of Israel can be saved because why? He himself was saved. That's why in 1 Timothy 1 verse 16, Paul says that in due time he was born that Christ might show his mercy to him as a pattern for all people. In other words, Paul saying, which by the way, you should say this. I've been saved God has changed me, has called me to himself, has given me grace so that other people can look at me and know that God can do that for them too. That should be your testimony today. You should recognize that one of the reasons God saves you is so that other people can see God's radical transformation in your life and want God too because he's so great to you. Amen? And Paul says, I've been saved so that I can be a pattern. And part of what he's thinking, I'm sure, is that other Jewish people could see him and recognize that they're not outside of salvation. They can be saved just as much as any other person can be saved by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and recognizing that he alone is Savior and Lord. Amen? That's the first point. Second point is this. Elijah, second proof, not point. Like I said, there's five proofs for why we know that God's not finished with the people of Israel. Paul was the first one. The second one is this, the prophet Elijah. Let's look at verses 2 through 10 of your Bible. Chapter 11, starting at verse 2. It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, 
Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Elijah is given to us as an example of what God is doing with the Jewish people today. Now, what, what do you know about Elijah? First Kings, all right? This is your reference point. If you don't know much about the story of Elijah, you should look at First Kings. In chapter 16, what we learn is that, um, see, Elijah was a prophet. And he was a prophet during a time when the nation of Israel wasn't loving God. In fact, they were apostate. They were totally uh, rejecting God. They were led by King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Anybody want to know why we continue to use the word Jezebel? Well, it's, it's because of her. Um, it wasn't good news for the people of Israel. And Ahab's wife, Jezebel, actually threatened to kill Elijah. Why? Because Elijah had all the prophets of Baal put to death after that little incident in Mount Carmel when God showed himself more powerful, the only true God, and he reigned. He reigned supreme over every other, quote-unquote, little g, God that any other system puts forward. There is only one God, and all people should worship him. Amen? And Mount Carmel proved that. Elijah had all the prophets of Baal put to death because God would be God, and no one else would serve anyone else but him. Well, Jezebel wasn't too happy about that because she was fine with her husband leading the apostate nation. And so she had Elijah uh, sentenced essentially to death. Elijah finds himself hiding. And in chapter 19, what we see is that he calls out to God in despair. And he says basically this, God, I'm the only one, God. Who loves you? I'm the only one who's faithful to you. Oh God, it's only me. And sometimes we think like that, don't we, as people? <laughs> I'm the only one who could, who is, loves God as much as I do. I'm the only faithful one left. Wrong, you're not. And God graciously speaks to Elijah. And you can understand why he thinks that. And I don't want to make light of it because it was a serious time. And there are times in our life when many other people turn from the Lord. And it seems like you are the only one left. And you can understand the despair and the cry of his heart. But what God comes to Elijah to speak, and it's quoted here in Romans chapter 11. He says, no, Elijah, you're not the only one left. In fact, look at it. Verse 4. He's quoting here. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed to the knee of Baal. What? He's saying is, Elijah, I see more than what you see. You might think you're the only one left, but in fact, there are 7,000 people among your people right now who still love me as much as you do, who are still true to me, who are still following me. And it, yes, by and large, everyone else seems like they're turning away, and they are. But there is a remnant today of those who I am keeping, who love me with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're not alone, Elijah. So what does this teach us about today? And the gospel going forward today about Christ and what's happening among the ethnic Jewish people. Well, it says here, verse 5, So too, at the present time, just like in Elijah's day, there is a remnant chosen by grace. In other words, you might think, as you look at the whole landscape of what's happening among Jewish people, you might think, 
well, gosh, there's no Jewish person that would ever accept Christ. It doesn't seem like there's any hope for my Jewish friends. It doesn't seem like they're ever going to come to the point that they believe in the Lord, that they surrender their pride and that they accept the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all who would believe. It might feel like that, but let me tell you, friends, it's not like that. Because there are some today, at this very day, who do love Jesus, who have accepted him, who do worship him as we do. There are those who in their heart are still yielded to the Lord. God keeps for himself a remnant. You got it? And God preserves that remnant. There are today, though the, by and large, the Jewish people have rejected Christ. There are many ethnic Jews today, even here in Memphis. We contacted some this past week. I'll tell you about it in a second. There are many ethnic Jewish people who worship Jesus as their Messiah. Amen? I'm, I'm so thankful for that, aren't you? There's hope, and Elijah teaches us that. He goes on to quote uh, from Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, and Isaiah 29, verse 10, Psalm 69, 22 to 23, to help us understand that the rest of the nation failed to obtain a relationship with God because they were hardened. They were given a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see. And in fact, they tripped over the stumbling block and the trap and the snare, trying to do it with their own works and their own way rather than trusting God and his way. Because see, Paul wants us to make sure, verse 6, that we understand it says it's by grace. These Jewish people weren't saved because they just kept on in the way that they were keeping on, trying to attain it through their work. That's not how they were saved. Every person is saved when they admit that they cannot do it. They will never do it. But rather, Christ has done it. He can do it. He will do it. And we trust Christ. We surrender all to him. That's how we are saved. And it's all God's grace through our faith. Amen? And Jewish people are saved that way. And he wants us to understand that all of this rests on grace. Listen, if you're here today and you still think, that the way to have a relationship with God, if, if you're coming in this morning, burdened in heaven, you think, I've got to do something more. I just, I know God wants this or that. Listen, he doesn't, it's not by your work, it's by his grace. He wants your heart. He wants total surrender. To everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Elijah, an example of the remnant that God is preserving. Number three, not only Paul himself, not only Elijah, but third, the Gentiles It's the third proof that God has not finished with Israel yet. Such an interesting logic here. Let's look at verses 11 to 15. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. In as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from Paul is using the Gentiles here to assure us that there is a future hope and salvation for many ethnic Jews. Follow the logic. He's saying that when Jews rejected the gospel, what happened? What happened? The gospel went to who? Went to 
the Gentiles. The Gentiles believed and were saved. Now what he says is that one of the reasons that God put this plan into motion is that when the Gentiles become saved, filled with spiritual life, excited for God, all of their needs are met, their hearts are full, joy is overflowing, the fruits of the Spirit are pouring out from their life. They are experiencing, obviously, those of us who are in Christ, and we're Gentile, if you're not an ethnic blood Jew, you're a Gentile, folks, okay? Just accept it, I'm a Gentile. Um, Those of us who are in Christ are overflowing with life. Right? What it says is that one of the plans of God is that through Israel's rejection, the Gentiles would be saved and experience this life, but in their life, the Jewish people would become jealous. They would look at that and they go, gosh, I'm stuck over here in my Jewish religion, only with half of the story still waiting on the Messiah, and all these folks over here who are Christians, those who are fully Jewish, they've accepted the Messiah, they've yielded themselves to God, bowed their knee, and they are experiencing spiritual life. Wow, I want that. Why am I not experiencing that? Why are my prayers not being answered like that? Why can't I experience the joy of worship like that? Why am I not happy like that? And in their jealousy, it actually brings them to Christ. What Paul is saying is that That is part of God's plan. And God's work among the Gentiles today is meant to draw more Jewish people to Christ. By their own looking at those who are actually Christians and saying, I want that. And there's coming a day, it says, that they will come to Christ. That the appointed number will come. Verse 12, he says, listen. How much more will their full inclusion mean? How much more will their full inclusion mean? And then in verse 15, how much, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, God is saying that we should foresee that the Jewish people, the appointed number of those who will come to Christ, they will come to Christ. And it's going to be great when together we can stand side by side with those who maybe are currently rejecting Christ who then will worship the Messiah, Jesus. Isn't that going to be great that all of us can worship the same Savior and Lord? I put a little chart on the screen just to help you understand it. Um, If you're logical and you like history, you can kind of, maybe this will help. But what he's saying here in these verses is first that the Jews rebel. They rebel and by their rebellion, salvation is taken to the Gentiles. When salvation is taken to the Gentiles, some Jews actually are saved. Why? Because they envy what the Gentiles are experiencing. And this is just a testimony for you that when you truly walk with the Lord and you live full of the Holy Spirit, other people will look at the way of your life, the relationship that you have with God, and it will influence them. And some people will come to Christ. I'm telling you, you don't believe this. Some people will come to Christ because you walk with the Lord and they see you walk with the Lord and they see the overflow in your life and they will want that too. That has happened with the Jewish people. Some Jews are saved then. When the appointed number of Jews are saved, then Christ will come. There will be glory and the end of history. It's really the end of history as we know it, but it's just the continuation of life in the new heavens and the new earth. 
God has a heart for Jewish people to be saved. And we know many times Jesus referenced in the Gospels that the Gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. Some of us are sitting here waiting for the end to come praying for Jesus to come back today and we should eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ because he says it could be any day at any hour nobody knows when it is but at the same time we know that almost half of our world today still hasn't heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ and we sit on our bombs as if everything is done it's not done we've got to get the news out amen God wants all the nations to be saved and you're a part of them but what we know is that when Jewish people are saved when the appointed number come God will come again and we'll stand side by side and it will be awesome worshiping Jesus together. Point number four, proof number four. So we've got Paul, he's a reason that we know God's not finished. We've got Elijah, the remnant, their reason. We know God's not finished. Third, the Gentiles, look at his work, meaning to produce envy and jealousy to bring them to Christ. We know God is not finished. Fourth, look at the patriarchs. Look at the patriarchs. We know that God is not finished. Verse 16 to 24. There's two examples here that I want to call your attention to. One is the lump of dough, and the other is the olive tree. We're going to read the passage. I will explain it quickly. Verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump, the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? You catch all that? (laughs) It's a lot, right? Two main examples I want to point your attention to. It's a lot more simple than you might think. One is... The lump of dough, verse 16a. What does it say? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. It's a reference to Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 to 21. The first part of the dough would be brought in to show that the rest of the dough was also accepted. If God accepts the first piece, then he will also accept the rest of it. It's the same as if you uh, had a, a harvest of wheat. You would bring the first part of your harvest in... And you would show that this belonged to the Lord and therefore the rest belonged to the Lord. The same is done on the first day of the week when we tithe. We bring our 10% to God and we say, God, this is what you provided for the week. I give you the first part of this this week and I trust that you know that the rest of this is yours. But I'm giving you this to 
show you that the rest is yours. Does that make sense? If the first part of the dough is offered to God and it's leavened, is accepted by God, then the rest of it will be too. So what he's saying is, as you look toward what God's going to do in the future with the rest of the dough, then you should look to what God has already accepted. And he's saying, look back at the past. Look at the special place that God has had in his heart and his plan for the Jewish people. He has already worked among the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, countless others who were truly his, that he's saved by his grace. If that is true, then you know that he will also continue to work with the rest of the Jewish people who came after them. Does that make sense? Secondly, he gives the example of the branches. Verse 16, or the olive tree, starting in verse 16b, he says, If the root is holy, so are the branches. In other words, if you look at the root of a tree, if it's good, then the rest of the tree is going to be good. But if you look at the root of the tree and it's bad, well, what's that mean? The rest of the tree is going to, it's trouble for the tree. But in this case, if you look at the root, the root here symbolizes God's working among the Jewish people from the very beginning. His grace and kindness, his plan of salvation, his working among the ethnic Jewish people from the beginning, that is here the root of the tree. And he's saying, if you look at the root and God's work among the root, then you know that the rest of the tree, God will continue his work among the Jewish people. You track him. The olive tree has been a symbol of the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament. I would bore you if I got into all of it. I just feel like I would. But if you want a paper on it, I'd be glad to write you one. Jeremiah 11, verses 16 to 17. Hosea chapter 14, verses 4 to 6. Those are probably the two clearest references to that. But Paul is talking about the nation of Israel when he's talking about the olive root. The root of the tree are the promises to the patriarchs. And the root of the tree sustains Israel to this day. So if you, if you ask the question, well, how do I have hope that God's going to keep working among the Jewish people, including my friends, people here in Memphis and around the world? Look back at his work in the past. That root, that work, those promises, all of that that has been realized, the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, most of them ethnic, Jewish. God has cultivated a wonderful root to this tree, and it will continue to grow. And in fact, you've got to recognize that your faith today, if you were a believer in Christ, rests on the Jewish people. It does. You, there would be no salvation today uh, if it were not for the Jewish people. That's where God began his work. And you've got to recognize that our faith is intrins- intrinsically Jewish. <laughs> That may sound funny to you because you don't consider yourself a Jew, but your faith, our faith, is intrinsically Jewish. It, it is the fulfillment of what God began among the Jewish people. And I don't shy away from wanting to learn more about the Old Testament, talk more about the Jewish traditions and customs, because God, all of that was intended to lead us to Christ. We are the most full Jew that a Jew can be in the sense of what God had always intended for the Jewish people to experience, not by blood, but by our faith in Christ. We have a lot that's resting on the Jewish people and the roots there. The branches of the olive tree, bloop, right? I'm making my branches. There, there are branches that he talks about, and the branches are the individual believers. And what he says is that some branches represent individual believers who grew up 
as an ethnic Jew. They were born into an ethnic Jewish family by blood. But they were cut off. Why? Because in their heart, they weren't yielded to God. They didn't share the faith of their father, Abraham. They rejected Christ. And so they were cut off from the tree. Just being born as an ethnic Jew doesn't make you saved. Being born into a Christian family doesn't guarantee you salvation. Did you know that? It's about where you are in your heart and in your life with the Lord Jesus. He says some branches were cut off by their rejection of Christ and their unbelief. But then there are other branches over here. These branches weren't born into the olive tree. They didn't start out into this cultivated olive tree. They were growing up over in the wild thorns. Those branches represent the Gentiles, individual people who weren't born in Jewish families. But it says God grafted them in like a gardener. He made them a part of this, the roots of his salvation, the plan for his people. Why? How were they grafted in? It says by their faith. Does that make sense? And so what God is pointing, to us, pointing out to us is this, that God has a plan for the Jewish people. And in fact, he says at the very end, some branches who were cut off by their unbelief, the Jewish people who were originally ethnically a Jew by blood, who were cut off by their unbelief, will be grafted in again Look at verse 24. It says, some will be grafted into, again, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? In other words, we should expect and anticipate that many who rejected Christ and had unbelief will once again come back to the olive tree of God's salvation by their faith, their turning to Christ, just as we did. And this should produce great humility in our hearts toward the Jewish people, not arrogance, but humility. Because we are getting to experience what God started among them. By his grace, God has allowed us to believe. And many of them who God started with have walked away. How thankful we should be that God has opened our heart and that we today can believe. Amen? So, Paul, Elijah, the Gentiles, the patriarchs, and then Paul comes to this wonderful conclusion at the end of chapter 11. He just kind of throws his hands up in worship. And it's one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, especially in the book of Romans. But the fifth proof that we're going to look at today is God himself. God himself. Verses 25 to 36. Starting in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they might now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, 
that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul comes to the end of his explanation of God's salvation. And essentially, he just falls on his knees. And he says, don't focus too much on yourself or other people through this. Focus your heart and your life upon God. For from God, through God, and to God, all of these things that we've been talking about this whole time, it's all about him. And the hope of your life is not about what you can do, but about God and his heart for you and what God has perfectly done for you and his son Jesus. Fall on your knees. Fall and worship God. You hear that in this passage. But in terms of a proof of why God's not finished Israel, he says, turn nowhere else other than God himself. There's a couple of things. First, God's timing. It says, until the fullness of time when all of the Gentiles will come in. Verse 25. Until the fullness of time when all the Gentiles come in. He says, this hardening is not forever. This rejection is not forever. There's an appointed time that God has right now that God is working among non-Jewish people in great harvest field kind of ways. But God's not forgotten the Jewish people, the ethnic Jewish people. He is allowing the Gentiles to experience the grace that they have rejected. But in the fullness of time, God has a plan for Jewish people to once again turn to him. God has things planned out. There's a time and a season for everything. There is a time that you're going to see a great harvest among ethnic Jewish people. Could it be today? Could it be tomorrow? Perhaps it is. But what you need to know is that God has a time and there will be a time when they are saved. Secondly, we see God's promise. God's promise in verse 26. It says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved for it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He's quoting here Isaiah 59 verses 20 to 21. He has promised that the ethnic people of Israel, that there will be salvation that comes to ethnic Jews and he will keep his promise. Look no further. He's promised it. Done. Third, his covenant. Not only his timing, not only his promise, but also his covenant. Look at verses 27 to 28. It says, this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Again, he's quoting Isaiah 59, and then he brings in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 6 through 11, and Deuteronomy chapter 9, 1 to 6, and he says, God has made a covenant, and he will not break his covenant. Though currently, it looks like they're enemies. They're, they rejected the Messiah. They, they killed him. For your sake, meaning that their rejection has resulted in your salvation. 
Don't think that they'll be enemies forever. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, God started a work with them and he will finish a work with them. He is still working among ethnic Jewish people. His covenant is with those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who would share their faith and God keeps his covenant. Amen? Fourth, we see this. Not only his timing, his promise, his covenant, but also his nature. Verse 29, he says, For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 says, I am the Lord, and I will not change. Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. In other words, God is God, and he doesn't change his mind. And he's already made up his mind that there will be ethnic Jewish people saved, and we know today that we haven't seen the end of it, that there are more that God was going to call to himself in Christ. And God... His nature is that he will not lie. He will not go back on his promise. Fifth, we see this, God's grace. Verses 30 to 32. It says, you know what? You were once disobedient to God like the Jewish people. But guess what? There was hope for you. Even today, friends, there's hope for you. Why? Not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of what? God's mercy which means that there's hope for Jews, even Jews who are disobedient today. Why? Because their salvation is not dependent on what? It's not dependent on works, but it's dependent on what? God and his mercy. And God says there's only one way that he saves, verse 32. He's consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. In other words, Gentiles and Jews are saved in the same way. They're saved by saying, I can't do it. I've been disobedient. I deserve judgment. I deserve God's wrath. I know that. But God loves me, and he has done it in his son Jesus. And he can do it, and he will do it. And I believe in him, and I surrender all to him. It's always about God's mercy, meaning that all have the opportunity to be saved. And then these verses that I love, and I encourage you to memorize, the last thing we see about God and his nature is his wisdom. Verses 33 to 36. Only God in his grace could have taken man's sin and turned it into his glory. Only God in his grace could take in our disobedience and forgiven it. Only God in his grace and in his wisdom could have taken our debt and paid it. Only God in his grace and his wisdom could have taken our deserved consequence and absorbed it. Only God in his grace could have taken our shame and covered it. Only God in his wisdom and in his grace could have taken our rejection and chosen to accept us. Only God in his grace could have taken our hostility toward him and given us peace. Taken our lovelessness and given us love. Taken Israel's rejection and allowing it to result in more salvation. Only God in his wisdom and grace. His ways are higher than our ways and his Thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his purposes are higher than our purposes. He's not a God that I can neatly define and neither can you, amen? You can't put him in a box and easily explain him. And the things that he does leave us speechless. He's not any of our debtors. We're not in any position to tell him what to do, but rather all we can do is do what? Praise him, thank him. 
fall on our knees before him. Because you were in a place that you didn't deserve it. And yet he's invited you in. You're in a place that you hadn't earned it. And yet he's given you everything. He's been overwhelmingly generous toward you and his son, Jesus. Worship him. Don't get so caught up in the details that you lose your heart of wonder and awe and worship. That's what Paul's saying here. So what does all this mean for your life? You might be asking that question today. A couple of things that I want to just point out. One is what we just said, awe and worship toward God. Gratitude for his grace. I think sometimes we take so much for granted, don't we? We just think that, you know, we deserve God's love. Yeah, God loves me. I know that. I've always been told that. It should shock you every time that you heal, hear, and feel the weight that God loves you. He knows you, everything, and he loves you, and he offers his grace and his life. That should overwhelm you and shock you. That anyone should be saved should overwhelm you and shock you. It should lead you to worship, to this kind of doxology moment as you consider his salvation. Oh, how awesome my God is. He is so awesome. I can't imagine a more wonderful person. I love him. I love him. I love him. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for Christ. Amen? That should be our heart every day. Secondly, humility toward the lost, not pride. You're not in a position to be arrogant about your salvation. See, if, if you are a more moral person, if, if your life is going better than other people or you're happier or you're more joy-filled or you're experiencing the wonderful fruits of the Spirit, see, all of that It's not because of you. It's because of God and his love for you. It's because while you are still a rebel and a sinner, he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. It's because he called you to himself by his grace. It's nothing that you've done. It's all because of him and his mercy. And you should feel the weight of his mercy and his grace in such a way that it produces humility. Humility is one of the primary traits of those who walk with God. Because they know that it's nothing about them and it's all about God. And they walk in humility before others because there's nothing to boast in. Everything they've experienced, other people can experience too. They would not, you know, I know I would not be a good person if it were not for the work of Christ in my life. And I've got to remind myself of that every day when I deal with frustrating people, sinful people. I was like that once before Christ saved me. I'm not arrogant toward people like that. I need to be humble. Amen? Third, we need love and prayer for Jewish people. Love and prayer for Jewish people. There's a video that I'm not going to show you. Um, Here's what I want you to do. Is this week in small groups, you're going to watch it together. I'm going to send the link out to your leaders, and I'm also going to put the link on the website. It's about a five-minute video, so it's only going to take five minutes of your time. It's one of the most profound testimonies that I think you will see, and it will change your perspective on Jewish people. It's about a man who grew up as a Jew 
and Jewish traditions and customs. And then he began to hear of Christ and his testimony about how he came to faith in Christ. And it will blow you away. And it will make you realize the wonderful fulfillment of all the promises that Jewish people hope for that can be realized when they turn to Jesus. I believe that you know people today that are Jewish and their ethnicity who may not believe in Christ. Let me just tell you this. Uh, you want to know, how many Jewish people do you think live in Memphis? 7,800, according to the 2006 study, which was the most recent. 7,800 Jewish people, ethnic Jewish people. If you look at the history, many prominent names in our city. Many of them live on the island. Many of them own businesses that you shop at, restaurants that you eat at. Many of them uh, work with you, jog in the same park as you. And you're going to find out that they're Jewish. The question is, when you find out that they're Jewish, what are you going to feel? What are you going to think? How are you going to act? I believe that what should immediately come across your heart is love for them. Thankfulness to them understanding all that we've talked about today, but love for them and desire, prayerful desire that they might come to Christ because you know that they only have half the story and they're waiting for the Messiah that has already come. And you know him and you know that they too can be saved if they call on the name of the Lord. Want, love them enough to want them to be saved and pray for that, but then also to move toward them. 7,000. 800. Memphis has the largest Jewish community in all of Tennessee. We're about to be passed by Nashville. They've got numbers close to ours. But right now, the lar- you are living in the city with the largest amount of Jewish people in our whole state. We need to know that, and we need to care. Worldwide, the population is 13.3 million Jewish people today. 13.3 million it's not growing very much. It's posting like a 0% growth over the last several years. It's pretty stagnant. But that is a big group of people who we know are lost unless they call on Jesus Christ. What percentage of that group do you think live here in the United States? It's actually about an equal percentage to the number of Jewish people that live in Israel today. 40% of the entire world's population of Jewish people live in the United States of America. They're gonna come in your clinics. Now we're getting close to home. They're gonna work around you. They're gonna live in your neighborhoods. They're gonna work out with you at the gym. You're gonna teach classes to them. You're gonna, your kids are gonna be in the same daycare. And they're lost unless they put their faith in Christ. They have so much heritage that they can be built on, but they need to know that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't have to wait any longer. They can put their faith in him, repent of their sin, and receive the gift of life. If they would just surrender everything to the Lord Jesus, he would save them and fill them with the life of God that they so desperately want and are waiting for. Amen? They're here. They're here. The question is, do you have a heart of love? You have a desire. And will you take an intentional action to share the good news of Jesus with them? Part of the reason this chapter is given to us is so that we can grow 
and our love and our action toward Jewish people. Because what we know, coming back around to our core truth, is that God has always had a gracious plan, a gracious heart and plan for the people of Israel. And you should too. We should too. So this morning, I'm just calling you to respond. This is not a passive moment in the service, but actually I'm asking you to do something. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Will you throw your hands up? Maybe your physical hands, but it may just be the hands of your heart. Will you throw your hands up and just worship God and thank him for his grace and his mercy, his unfathomable riches of his kindness, his overwhelming show of generosity to you in Christ that you, though a wretch, would be saved by his grace. Would you just throw your hands up and say, thank you, God. Thank you. I love you. I want to love you more. And would you yield your heart to say, God, give me your heart for your people, all the peoples of the world and all the nations of the world. But today I'm asking that you would give me a greater heart of love, of desire, and intentional action toward Jewish people because they've only got half the story. And I can't imagine my life without Christ. And I want to do anything and everything that I can do, maybe just a single first step to help the Jewish people know that the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus. I'm here today. If you want to make a decision for Christ, oh, there's no better decision you can make than to yield your life to him. If you want to join our church or be baptized, if you need to just come and pray, pray about something going on in your life, just have some needs, you just need to come and just lay it before God. You come, respond though. Don't just sit there, stand there. Everybody stand up, we're going to sing. Don't just stand there. Respond in your heart today and cry out to God.